Hello, everybody, and welcome or welcome back to Addicted to Recovery, the interactive memoir, a podcast that takes you through the sordid stories of active addiction through my memoirs about it. I'm Tara Boyce. I'm a returning student, a voice actor, a singer, a gamer, a writer, an oversharer of all my personal trauma, and a whole bunch of other things. I think I used to say this in the earlier episodes, but it's an important thing for me to remember and re-emphasize that because I am sober and I take the time and effort to be proactive in my own mental health, I get to be more than just my addiction or any diagnoses I've had. I just have a bigger life and a wider range of experiences and emotions available to me. And, you know, now that kind of includes more things than really messed up and just A-OK. Sometimes because I've been better for a while now, I forget that I'm still allowed to have periods where I need a bit of extra support as well. So much of me getting better was recognizing that I didn't have to do everything all by myself and work everything out all by myself. I know in the past when I would start to feel like I was struggling, I would just pretend that everything was great and put on this whole positivity parade, then be ducking into the bathroom to slurp down vodka I'd stashed in empty vitamin bottles. And now as someone in recovery, sometimes I find it hard to give myself permission to acknowledge when... I'm feeling insecure because I'm afraid it'll come off as a lack of gratitude or a signal to the people around me that I'm going to lose my shit or that I'm not in control. But I really think part of being in control is being able to acknowledge that emotional struggles and internal struggles and doubts and self-doubt, you know, those things are still on the table, very much so. Like, I'm going back to school and social work in a couple of weeks, and I'm pretty confident I'll be okay with the academic part, but what if I get into the field and I freeze? It's one thing to be able to extol wisdom or reflect my experiences behind a microphone in a room by myself. There are just going to be challenges that I can't quite anticipate yet, and that makes me nervous. And I'm wondering how I'm going to balance my scholastic schedule with my family and my relationships, my friendships, my recovery. I still want to be able to go to choir, and I have this desire to do even more performing. I still want to keep voice acting, and this podcast means a lot to me. But part of me wonders if I should even be doing this anymore. Like, maybe I've said all of the good things I have to say at this point, and people are going to get sick of me talking about one relapse after another. You know, there's, I just, I'm feeling a lot of uncertainty, which is totally normal. But for some reason, I have a lot of difficulty acknowledging perfectly normal feelings of trepidation, because I'm afraid if I open the door just a crack... All the insecurities might just come pummeling through and stampede over me. Or people might discover that I'm not up to the task of my life and, I don't know, they might fire me. I still kind of find it weird that anyone lets me do anything. I still half expect someone to burst open my door right now and say, Hey, who the heck do you think you are? Podcasting. Huh. 
Now put on this hat and apron and back to Starbucks with you. My pattern after rehab, as you'll soon find out, was to just keep up the charade of being great until I was really not great. Until the drinking had already been gone on for a while and I was unable or unwilling to rein it back in, I wouldn't be open about my slips or my feelings until disappearances and ambulances reemerged in my life. I think when you live your life in such deep dysfunction for such a long time, it's really easy to see the absence of that extreme self-destruction as just everything being great, and everything is so great comparatively. And I am super grateful for my life. But I also have to be mindful of that part of me that will insist that I'm okay until the point that I'm really not okay. I have to be allowed to have bad days and doubts and worries and fears. And it doesn't make me any stronger to just regurgitate wisdom from self-help books anytime someone asks me how I'm doing. Historically, I'd just be fine up to the point where I was really self-destructive. So I think what the lesson is on offer from my previous mistakes is that you know, denying the darkness is not the way to avoid the darkness. It's about giving myself the space to say, hey darkness, I see you. It's okay, we can hang for a while. I'm not really that scared of you anymore. And hey, maybe you can even meet my friends. I don't think they'll all abandon me if they know that we've been hanging out a bit. And if you're not too put off by my low-key referencing Simon and Garfunkel songs, I'd love it if you would reach out to me at interactivememoir at gmail.com. Please send me your questions, comments. You can give me topic recommendations for future episodes. There's also a donate button in the show notes if you want to support the show, but the best way really you can support the show is if you recommend it to a friend, post it on your social media. As I was saying, I was someone who tried very hard to hide when I was struggling, but hearing about other people's struggles was often a gateway to being able to connect with and open up about my own, so... You never know, maybe there's someone in your circle who's a lot like that too, and might connect with some of the things that I talk about in this podcast. But either way, I'm super thrilled to have you here, and I'm going to get into the next chapter, but first, previously on Addicted to Recovery, I go to rehab and I hate it. I manage to convince my parents and myself that I'm ready to leave and that everything will be a-okay when I get back. When I was back from rehab, I believed, because of my few months of sobriety, that all the problems in my life would just solve themselves. Alcohol had been the problem, right? The thing that was holding me back was removed, so what could stop me? The trouble was, I hadn't fully fleshed out what things that alcohol was no longer stopping me from doing that I was supposed to be doing. Perhaps it's because I couldn't find a business suit that fit my shoulders properly, which undermined my confidence to become a creative writing entrepreneur. 
again, maybe it's because I didn't have any realistic goals and therefore no strategy for achieving them. And I also just didn't know what to do with myself. In rehab, all of the structure had been imposed. I was told where to be and what to do. Because there was zero free time there, I hadn't learned to manage my own time. And now all I had was free time. There was no outpatient program for people who bailed halfway through the program. The program also hadn't connected me with 12-step communities or any other form of sober support, and I still believed AA was just for Jesus freaks and DUI dodgers anyways. And I was clearly too fragile to get a job or any such thing. I mean, God forbid I be triggered by something like responsibility or money. I mean, no, 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 none of that. I was in recovery. I had to take things slowly. It's actually a good thing I had a borderline hoarding problem and was terribly messy. So I had a lot to do in absence of anything real to do. Just watch me simulate productivity. I was gonna organize all my things. Watch out, cluttered bedroom. You won't even be able to handle the power of sober me. Unfortunately, trying to marry condo my possessions only kept me busy for about a week. So I created more projects for myself, reorganizing the categories in my filing cabinet by class instead of by year, arranging my hair care products by concern, volumizing products here, color care here, damage control in another basket, and in my life. But then the shampoos and the leave-ins were cluttered together, which didn't make sense. So I re-strategized back to the step-by-step -step logic of when you put the product in your hair. Pre-shower, in-shower, after-shower. There. Better. The world makes sense. I am in control. I took down some old posters and put up some framed art instead. I figured art was better to represent this new chapter of my sober life. So down came the Sailor Moon posters, and up went the pastel renderings of woodland creatures that surely signaled I had arrived somewhere. But as much as I liked paintings of squirrels, I didn't know what my new life meant yet, or how it should be represented. I was restless, confused, wondering what I should do, wondering what I could do. The old me would have found people to party with or just start drinking and let the alcohol make my decisions for me. Turns out sober me didn't really know how to make any decisions at all. Even trying to marry condo my room, how was I supposed to know what brought me joy anymore, what I should hold on to and what I should part with? And I wasn't willing to let go of much. From magazine cutouts of articles about Radiohead from high school, to far too many stuffed animals for a grown woman, to books about mastering palm readings. Rather than part with anything, I just shuffled it around, from a drawer to under the bed, or from under the bed to a box in the attic. And this could be seen as a pretty perfect metaphor for my overall sense of paralysis. I didn't know which parts of me belonged to me anymore, or where those parts that did belong to me belonged. So it seemed to me that what alcohol had been preventing me from doing all along were tedious attempts at reorganizing my belongings. Whoop-de-doo! 
I found myself more and more preoccupied with the things that not drinking was preventing me from doing, or would at least prevent me from enjoying. The problem was I hadn't created a life model for integrated sobriety. I just thought I would insert my sober self into my old life, and everything would be the same, except without the nasty consequences of being a sloppy drunk. However, the first time I tested this hypothesis, I found it was not that simple. My first attempt at stepping back into my life was for Blue Metropolis, a literary festival where I knew my poetry teacher would be speaking, and of course where all the who's who of the written word would be hobnobbing about with their small press publications and big-time egos. If I wasn't there to see and be seen, I knew I would permanently dissolve into perpetual literary obscurity. I shared my urgent need to be there with my parents, who were understandably worried they didn't think I was ready. But I'm going with Max, I consoled them. She knows I'm not drinking, and it's just a bunch of readings. It's not even a drinking thing. And Max knows you just came out of rehab, right? She'll be looking out for you? Of course, I assured them. I tell her everything. And I really wished that had been the case. But I'd actually made some patchwork of half-truths. That I'd been hospitalized for some kind of hepatitis. And therefore should not be drinking, you know, for my health. I tried to physicalize my ailment so it was more legitimate than, well, that girl just can't handle her spirits. I believed physical illnesses curried less judgment. I then said I'd been to some mental health recovery retreat, which sounds lovely, but I'm fairly certain with that description and the lack of detail, anyone could smell bullshit or rehab. And the real reason I could not, would not say rehab was not really because I thought people would judge me for being an alcoholic and going to rehab. It's because I feared it would be weird when I started drinking again, though believing the former allowed me to shift the responsibility to others. I met Max at Carlos and Pepe's, a Mexican restaurant, where I ostentatiously ordered a virgin daiquiri and went on to explain how great I was feeling, that I was fixed, I was healing, and there were apologies for my previous misdeeds. Max, as always, was thoughtful and caring, gently probing me to feel safe to share how I was really feeling. She could probably tell I was anxious, that I was spiraling. But I kept up the facade and the manufactured stories, repackaging rehab as some idyllic healing setting where I had done so much learning and growing. I think what I feared more than condemnation was that if I said out loud what I was really experiencing, which was just a profound sense of dislocation and confusion, then I would have had to face it myself and... I wasn't ready to do that if I didn't see any solution. Me and Max never fully recovered the intimacy in our friendship we'd had the year before, and I thought it was because I made things awkward by not being able to drink like I used to, like the alcohol had been the glue even though I knew that wasn't true. Me and Max had mainly bonded sober. We'd mainly hung out after class in the afternoon talking about books and boys over vegan food. 
But it was my perspective that was skewed, that everything was about me and how much I was or was not drinking. I think it's more true that people can tell when you're bullshitting them or dancing around the truth, and nobody likes to feel like you don't trust them. I should have given her enough credit to actually be the friend that she was. But I still hadn't learned to truly trust anyone. At the literary festival, I saw all the people I'd equally yearned to see and feared seeing. My poetry teacher, other professors, that editor guy I dated, students and graduates and writers in residence. Ironically there, of all places, I seem to have lost my verbal abilities. And I'm not talking about writing or even talking about writing. It's like I had forgotten how to speak. And it also turned out no one was as interested in my several months' absence as I expected them to be. It seems that not everyone had shown up to the festival to talk to me about me. They were actually more interested in the readings and workshops, book signings, and low-key literary celebrities. Which should have been a relief, given my difficulties with verbal delivery but it only highlighted my insecurities that maybe indeed, in those few months, everyone had just kind of forgotten about me, which was a dramatic distortion. Just because it wasn't all about me also didn't mean that I was nothing, but I hadn't yet learned how to process that distinction. All I kept thinking was how much easier the affair would be if I was drinking. I'd be rubbing elbows without overthinking. I'd be gracious and witty. Everybody would love me. Which proves I'd already forgotten how I usually acted when I was inebriated. After the festival's main events, of course, to the bar. I'd promised I'd only go to the main event, that's all. No after parties, no pubs or distilleries. But I felt like I had something to prove. To me. That after the stuffy misery of the literary festival, at least in the darkness and din of a pub, I might be able to reclaim a piece of who I thought I was. Since everybody and by everybody I mean Max and Dawn knew I wasn't drinking, that was certainly some protection. But it didn't protect me from realizing how completely I did not fit into my old life without drinking. I don't think I was prepared for the sharpness of those feelings. Fitting in somewhere belonging was something I'd always deeply craved. And now, the absence of the thing that had apparently been destroying me was destroying me in a different way. I did not know how to be. I wasn't the me I used to be, drinking, and I didn't know how to be in the environment without alcohol, unable to follow the rhythms of conversations, just thinking about what other people were drinking, and thinking about if other people were thinking about me not drinking, wondering what everyone else was wondering about me, but really, everyone else was just in their element, doing their thing. And I left that bar sober, which I could have just taken to the bank as a victory. But I was so wrecked emotionally. The event shattered some 
illusion in me that my old life would have a place for sober me. And clearly, there were a lot of problems of perception at play. Maybe it was just the wrong event. Maybe I just wasn't having a good day. Maybe it was just because I was still newly sober, and there would inevitably be growing pains. Maybe I could have just remembered there are other ways of being a student and a good writer than fitting in with the drinking culture. But at the time, I just saw the event as proof that it was painful to be sober. In the following days, I was back to my tedious tasks like re-refiling all the papers I kept from school, scavenging through my notebooks, seeking scribbles of wisdom to tear out of journals, paper scraps, agendas, and school book margins that might inspire my magnum opus. My barstool scrawlings were not as evocative as I'd hoped. My parents went out for the afternoon, and I activated. Every time they left the house, which wasn't often, as they were afraid to leave me alone, I prowled about, snooping. To this day, I don't know if I was looking for alcohol. I mean, if I really wanted some, I could have just gone to the store. Or if I was looking to make sure there was no alcohol, so I could relax. And there was never any alcohol that wasn't under lock and key. Except this time. Two. Miniature bottles. Minis like the ones you get on airplanes, or the ones I would stick in my underwear if I knew I was going to be searched. They were just tucked away in the bar area, behind the cleaning supplies. Had they been there last time I'd snooped around? Maybe I'd only checked to see if the wine room was locked? Was this a test? Had my parents planted them? When I reached out to pick them up, my hands were shaking. My entire body had broken into sweats. I hadn't even drank anything yet. I didn't understand the physiological drama taking place. The tape of rehearsed rationalization started playing. It's not my fault if it was just left out, and... I feel like I didn't properly get to say goodbye to alcohol, and it's a good idea to test myself, and nothing bad can happen with too many bottles. So, I drank them. Bye-bye, my first extended period of sobriety. I mixed them with diet grapefruit soda. I even took the time to crack in a few ice cubes and stir it gingerly, just to prove I didn't need it so desperately. As I sipped the first drink slowly, I waited for those familiar feelings to resurface, like when you run into an old flame and all your glorious moments together come rushing back, like in that Celine Dion song. Instead, I just felt guilty, anxious, my mind was running scenarios of what I would do and say if I got caught, if the bottles had been planted, or if their absence would be noted, if my parents would look at me and just know. My body wasn't relaxing, and that everything is going to be okay feeling I thought the alcohol would bring, the feeling I'd been chasing since first sobering up, 
just wasn't happening. Maybe it was because I was too stimulated with worry, and one drink couldn't hope to counteract all that anxiety. So I drank the second one a little bit more quickly, uh, with a little bit less grapefruit fizzy, and found myself feeling more intoxicated than I intended to be. But it just didn't feel right in me. It felt kind of muddy. Instead of feeling soothed, I felt contaminated. My recently sharpened mind felt stupid. And at least my thoughts had slowed in their racing, but I just felt inept, incapable of doing much of anything. Drinking had once been so clarifying, so energizing, it would make me feel like I could do anything. Or maybe I just made those associations when it was my addiction talking. I disposed of the evidence and started streaming episodes of Heroes, riding out the sensations, waiting for the brain pollution to subside. I just wanted the feeling to go away. It turned out I just didn't like drinking anymore. Well, I thought, I suppose that was a successful experiment. I've cured myself of drinking by drinking, and my parents didn't suspect a thing. Yet still, somehow, the next day, my brain was bombarded with machinations for acquisition of more alcohol. This was beyond confusing. I'd reached my conclusion. The experience of drinking had been quite displeasing. There was no reason to want a repeat incident. I just binge-watched teen shows all day to mute out the invasive thoughts. And I did not drink. See? All better. But the next day, the thoughts were back. I figured, well, maybe I just need to remind myself, again, how unsatisfying it was. I bought some white wine they used to sell in quarter liters at the corner store. I drank it, and I felt a little ill, muggy, and paranoid and just wandered through the park until it wore off, afraid of going home. And I didn't want to buy more. I didn't hop a bus downtown and start doing shots with strangers. But still, I felt this warmth trickle through me. And it wasn't from the wine. It seemed to me rehab had done more than I thought it would. It had cured the alcoholism right out of me. I no longer particularly enjoyed intoxication. I could probably start drinking like a normal person again. And within a month, me and my family were fighting more than talking. They said they couldn't support me living there if I was going to keep drinking the way I had started drinking again. Fine then, I said, I'll just find an apartment. It'll probably be good for me to have some independence. And I managed to live on my own for three weeks before my alarmed roommates contacted my parents to come help. I was unresponsive, lying next to an open closet full of empty vodka bottles. And so, the dissemination of this chapter is brought to you by Hindsight is 2020 and Captain Obvious. So, 
Of course, I should have been seeking outside support. 12-step meetings, therapy, a bingo club at the local church, like Christ, anything. But what it came down to was that the life that I wanted was a life that included a lot of drinking. And what, I expected I was just going to be able to sit on the sidelines and watch everyone else have the life that I felt I was being denied? That that was never going to last. At that point, was I scared of drinking? Sure. Somewhat. But I was a hell of a lot more afraid of missing out on the only model of a fulfilling life that I had ever really known. That last year in Concordia, even when things began to break down, had been the only time that I felt I had a place. And if I took away the alcohol, I didn't know if I had that place anymore, and I hadn't thought of any other place I could be. Which in some ways shows a pretty profound lack of imagination on my part. But I had just expected I could take something away in my life, and something that was a really big part of my life without adding anything to replace it and I was supposed to just be fine. A lot of the time in treatment, they'll focus on the negative consequences of a return to substance use or abuse, but there's often very little exploration of what a sober life might look like for you as something you can be excited about, not something you have to learn how to tolerate, not learning about how you're going to say no to alcohol at all the parties you will go to that will now be lame or that you might not even be invited to anymore, or all the ways you can manage the horrible distress of being alive without your drug of choice. And sure, distress tolerance is very important, but how about building a life where you're not in distress all the time? A life that you don't feel like you're just tolerating. Instead of just imagining all the horrible things that might happen to you if you start drinking again, which were all horrible things that had already happened to me anyway, so who really cares? How about imagining all the amazing things that would only happen to you if you committed to your sobriety? Instead of constantly focusing on trying not to repeat past mistakes, how about getting a clear picture of what a compelling future could look like? As something you'd be willing to fight for, something you'd be willing to, yeah, maybe tolerate a little bit of discomfort to get to. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I was still far too deeply seduced by this idea of what it was to be an artist or a writer in this scene that my return to alcohol was pretty much inevitable, but maybe if I had had a competing image of who I could be, that maybe I could have allowed myself to become equally seduced by. Like maybe if I'd even just focused on the writing part of being a writer, or maybe if I'd recommitted to becoming a performer. I mean, I don't know what the special sauce might have been in this hypothetical universe. But I do know that now, most of the things in my life that I care about, that I care about deeply, would fall apart if I started drinking again. And that's how you get leverage on yourself. You raise the stakes. You don't just create a life where you're not drinking or using drugs. You create a life where you get to do the things you can do because you're not drinking and doing drugs. And now none of the things I really want in my life really have anything to do with alcohol. 
I don't think that's much of an accident either. But I had to come to a point where I believed that my life would get bigger, not smaller, without alcohol. And believe that I could become more, not less, without alcohol. And somehow it happened. Slowly, but it did happen. And I hope you know that you too have so much more to offer the world than you even know. Until next time. <laughs>